we're going to talk about songs. We're in the Thin Spaces, uh, Thin Places series, and I must tell you that this was originally going to end in May, but the response from you and also our listeners online has been rather overwhelming to this series. So we're going we're to keep it through June, and then we will move beyond this. Uh, we have a, a whole new series lined up coming in. But today and next week, we're going to talk about song. The Bible is full of songs, literally full of songs. They cross the Red Sea, they sing. Jesus and his apostles, before they go out, sing. All the way into the book of Revelation, they sing a new song in heaven. Songs are throughout, it, it, it's everywhere. And in fact, the biggest book in the Bible is the book of Psalms. It is a theology text. It is a songbook. It is a statement defining the community and a statement outlining our faith in 150 songs. It's amazing, the, the amount of songs in Scripture. Songs and singing are mentioned 400 times. Actually, it's a rounding that off. 400 times in Scripture, and 50 of those are commands. God wants song to be a part of our life. If some of you are, because uh, we've shipped out our young people, most of us uh, today, the, uh, if, if you are of a certain age, you quit watching the New Year's Eve program years ago when you couldn't identify any of the singers. <clears throat> I can still remember the first time that I looked at the newspaper, remember those, the newspaper, and it had a list of the top 40 for the week, and I didn't recognize any. And I looked at Cammie and I said, that's it, we're done. Uh, I don't, I guess we're over now. Songs are a big part of our life, but sometimes we don't know what they're used for and how to use them right. So let's, let's talk about this. If there are 50 commands to put songs into our lives, maybe we should pay attention to this. Historians and sociologists have long understood the power of song. Psychologists started just studying this about 100 years ago, and they're hurrying to catch up. Every significant social movement has songs. Every one. The, the one which many of you will first come to mind is in America, the civil rights movement. I truly believe it would not have done as well as it did were it not for the songs. The songs gave people courage to face the fire hoses and the dogs. It gave them courage to face the police batons or clubs, whatever you call them. Um, it, it gave them courage to keep walking, to keep together, to lock arms. Songs gave them courage because the songs were an overflow of their heart. They were meaningful and, and much less significant. But in recent months, there's another il uh, illustration of this. A movie came out that professional movie reviewers panned. Rotten Tomatoes gave it barely 50, 57 percent. So that was that means rotten. It didn't even hit the the uh, the good movie thing, and they they just went after it, saying this isn't that. They don't like it at all. It was a little movie called The Greatest Showman, and yet when you asked viewers who went to the movie what they thought of it, 95% of them loved it. By the way, that's not terribly uncommon on Rotten Tomatoes, so just file that away. People reacted to this movie. They, they kept posting on social media, you have to see it. 
Many years ago, I learned that when people tell me I have to do something on social media, it does not equate to a command from God, and so I consider it optional, uh, and I rarely follow. But then my daughter started praising it, and uh, being a, a child of Cammy, she's hard to please. I, I think that's where it comes from, frankly. Um, it's, um, it's sad, because my, my whole family is sweetness and light, but um, I'm not sure where the laughter's from. Anyway, the, the point being... When my daughter was praising it, I was going, huh, maybe I should go see it. Now, full disclosure here, I don't like musicals. I just don't. And I, if that disappoints you, I'm just not bothered by that either, frankly. Uh, I, um, I, I, you know, Sound of Music, I've had people, oh, really? Okay, that's, um, that's your history right there. Uh, I, it, it just, it, they've just always annoyed me. Uh, and I'd be over in Breton, and I'd be down in London, and people would say, oh, can you get us tickets to go to this music or the like? I'm going, I don't even know where they are because they're optional. I don't go to them. But I drug myself to see this movie because I was interested really in the history and also to see, all right, what's going on here? I've always been fascinated by Barnum and fascinated by the circus movement and how it began. And while the history was pretty good in it, the songs immediately realized what was going on. The songs were hitting a chord with the people who watched it. The songs were not about Barnum. The songs are not about the circus. The songs were about us. The songs were about you and me and our lives. And all of a sudden, the resonating began. And while still while Rotten Tomatoes and other places were panning it and saying, it'll never be, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a flop. And it was called a flop by reviewers on TV and in print. The next thing we knew, the song, This Is Me, becomes a cultural phenomena. It's sung at the Grammys. It's sung uh, at one of the 15,000 award songs, uh, word shows every single week, it seems. Why? Because it spoke to something powerful in us. Songs are woven into our story. They're woven into the story of God. They're woven into the story of life. The slaves in America sang songs of hope and songs of faith that to this day shame me when I hear them and realize where they were when they sang these songs about the chariot swinging low and wading in the water. Now we call these things spiritual songs, and we work them into our rotation as we should keep them alive, but often wonder, do we realize the amount of faith it took to sing that song in the fields? Years ago, in fact, it was um, near the end of the, um, well, in the early 2000s, I was in the Detroit area in Rochester, and we generally just call it Detroit because by that time, Detroit had emptied out and a lot of it had moved north to where we were. And it was going to be the 100th anniversary of the split between us and our brothers and, and sisters in the Christian church. And we, many of us, uh, Bob Russell and Rick Atchley and I and others had, had said, that's enough. That's just, we, we need just to say, we, we don't have a split. We are brothers. And so we did something called the Great Communion. I don't know if that was done here or not, where we prepared our people for on a certain date, we would invite all the disciples of Christ, Christian churches and churches of Christ to our building 
to celebrate communion together and say, we are not separate. We are one people. It was a grand day. The Disciples of Christ churches in Detroit are almost entirely African-American. And so when they came, they came very dignified. They, they came very well-dressed. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, all right, I'm trying to keep up here. And we sang songs to each other. One of my favorite moments was whenever I asked a disciples pastor in our planning, I said, we need to share uh, duties at the table. Would you do this? And I'll do this. And like, and he, he said, shall I bring my chalice or use yours? <clears throat> I said, um, yours would be fine. <laughs> you know, I didn't know what to say. Mine's at the cleaners. Do you clean them? I don't know. You know, I, it, and, and it, it touched me to realize, you know, I, our cultures have diverged, and we need to get back together before this goes any further. The show-stopping moment, it was not meant to be a show-stopping. I'm not saying that irreverently. It was a great worship all the way through. But the pastors of the Disciples of Christ, again, every one of them African-American, very large men, stood, wanted to sing a song for us. Well, remember, we had invited their, their bands in and like, but they stood up, I think there were about six of them, a cappella, and sang, and it blew us away. It was, it, it, it absolutely, we, I looked around, and there were stunned faces everywhere. Why? Song. Song coming from the heart. Song as a gift. Now, I wish the teens were here. I always miss them when they're not here. And please make sure they get this message, whether they're listening to it on the podcast or whether they're uh, watching it on Facebook later, because I want them to understand something about music. And it's not going to be what you think. I'm not going to go on an attack on the music of today. No, no. Children and teens need music. Music gives a voice to and actual words and definitions to what they feel. When a teenager has done something you find absurd and you look at them and say, what were you thinking? And they say, oh, no. They don't know. <laughs> They're not stupid. It's that they've not yet had the time and the space to put words to the emotions that they're feeling. They need time to draw those circles and make those rooms in their brain. Music offers this to them and builds rooms for a repository of, of images and emotions so they can go back to that. Many of us, whenever we listen to a song on a radio, go right back to a particular moment in life. I can remember once talking to some friends about this in the field uh, of psychology, and I said, you need to understand that one of these days, there are going to be two old people sitting on the front porch of a nursing home covered with blankets in 90-degree heat, and out front on the road, there's going to be a Jeep. And when it stops at the light, it's going to be vibrating with... <laughs> and like all that, right? And the old man's going to turn to the woman and say... It's our song. <clears throat> because it is. It, it, it means so much to them. It is, it, that little room of feelings opens up all over again. 
And there are songs that do that to us, and that's a brilliant, wonderful thing. I asked Cammy what song takes her back to our dating days, and she said, if I had a hammer, and that, that bothered me a little. <laughs> I just assumed she's a real Peter, Paul, and Mary fan, and I, I moved on. I moved on. There, I'm not a classical music uh, lover. Now, that, please do not be offended by that. It just means I don't know it well. I was not, um, I was not exposed to it at great, you know, at, at that stage in my life where it would become a part of my life. And yet, there are times where I have been in great pain, emotionally, physically, or just worn out, and I kind of need a mental reset, and I can count on Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata and Pathétique and, and some others to get my head right again. If I can just have an hour to hear them, I'm going to be okay. Many times coming back from a long series of engagements where I'm speaking and the like, that last hour I'll put them on my phone and put the headphones in because I want to reset before I, I walk into my house. I want my, my brain to be right, and that song can do that. It vibrates with the right message to get that, uh, that part of me back. We use songs like this. We use songs to remember places and times. There's an, uh, an idiotic meme on, on Facebook just now. There always are. But there's one pa being passed about that says, uh, people say that whatever song was number one when you were 14 defines your life. People don't pass stupid stuff around. It's, that's not true at all. And, and now some of you are going to go home and look it up. It's, it's, all right, fair enough. But I can't sing songs like God Be With You Till We Meet Again without going back to camp in my head. Because we always sang that as, as we parted. We're in Scotland, my friend singing, which is a, a, just means we're not a way to stay away. It's a song to come back. And in fact, the other song that just takes me back is Will You Know Come Back Again? And it's, a, it's an incredibly touching song for me. It's hard for me to listen to. Whenever we sing Abide With Me, I'm not, please don't embarrass her, but my wife, generally speaking, cannot get through it without tears because that's the song, that's the tune that is played as the flag comes down in Scotland and the lone piper plays on the top of the castles. The tune is Abide With Me, and it means so much to us. It takes us right back. Songs are in the heart of God. And because they're in the heart of God, they're in the fabric of the universe. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. God sings over you. See this lovely picture in your mind. God is rocking you. He is singing to you. He is quieting you and singing over us as a loving mother sings over a troubled child. Now, I talked about being woven into the universe, and I would love to go into great detail on this, but sometimes when I start talking about science, people's eyes bleed. And so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this as simple as I can, and that's not an insult. It's just if that's not your lane, that's not your lane. Carl Jansky was a physicist and a, a radio engineer. And he made a discovery by accident way back in the early decades of the, the 1900s. Whenever he pointed, and I'm just going to put it this way, rather than a telescope, 
he pointed a big microphone and it went up and he heard something. From that moment began the science of what is today called radio astronomy. To this very day, we have massive listening devices pointed up. No, they're not listen, li listening to aliens. They're listening to the sounds made by the universe. It is an eerie sound that sounds like singing. In the book of Job, God talks about this, saying, were you there in the beginning when all of the stars sang together for joy? Today, we listen to this to understand how things, we can hear things moving away from each other, understanding the better the expansion of the universe. We are also hearing echoes of what scientists will call the Big Bang, or the moment of creation, because you can still hear the echoes bouncing off the stars. Songs are everywhere. The heavens sing. Normally, when I write a sermon, it's, it's all mine, so all mistakes are mine. And today, the same, all mistakes are mine. But I, I did go to three other men that I'd, I need to, to give you their names, to be honest, because they gave me details, which will help me a lot today and next Sunday. And these aren't people that you know. These are people that uh, have preached elsewhere and other times. This is Stuart Blunt, Tom Olson, and Matt Chandler. And I appreciate what I learned a lot of what I learned that I'm going to share came from them. Let's talk about David. David was a man after God's own heart. Now, we need to understand that phrase. When you look at the life of David, it's easy to see nothing but tragedy. He was the world's worst father. When more than one of your sons tries to kill you and take your wives, that's one of the top warning signs that you might not be dad of the year, regardless of the mug from which you drink your coffee. I do wonder one day whether archaeologists will have slap fights in the middle of a street over who really was number one dad, because they keep discovering these, these people at different places. But regardless, they, um, David, when he was after a man, uh, after God's own heart, meant he was in pursuit of it. It doesn't mean his heart was like God's heart. He, his heart was full of sin like ours. His heart was full of temptations like ours. But rather than being all right with this, he kept chasing the heart of God. He was also the primary author of a lot of our songs in the Psalms. Beyond this, he was the architect of group or corporate worship. In First Chronicles 15, David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their fellow Levites as musicians to make a joyful sound with musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals. The musicians, Heman, Asaph, and Ethan, were to sound the bronze cymbals. She and I wasn't going to read all this, but uh, Shep, that's all right. We can, we can put it back up there. Look at her. She's just, you know, going, all right, then I'll take it away. Uh, <clears throat> Shebaniah, Josephat, uh, Nathaniel, Amasai, Zechariah, Benaiah, and Eleazar, the, the priest, were to blow trumpets before the ark of God. Obed-Edom and Jehiah were also to be doorkeepers for the ark. What's going on? He sets up musicians, but then he sets up the singers. In chapter 15 and verse 16, we read that before, to make singers. And then chapter 15, verse 27, when David was clothed in a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who were carrying the ark, as were the musicians, and Kenaniah, who was in charge of the singing of the choirs. 
it was David who, in pursuit of the heart of God, set up musicians, singers, choirs, and corporate worship, and God accepted that. So whenever Keith or Mark bring together a team up here, they are following the legacy of David who was in the pursuit of the heart of God. It is a holy thing. David insisted in Psalm 100 that people come to God with an offering of music. Now, in my life, I've heard many things which make me cringe, even though I didn't want to bring it up to the person because there was no reason to embarrass them. Some people think songs are a warm-up for the preacher. No, no. Songs are at least as important as the preacher, if not more. Oh, no amens. Okay. Um, <laughs> a little disappointed in that. I guess Steve Helgeson's away. The, um, <clears throat> music I've had many times in my life, and again, this is not an, I'm, I'm not, this is not a negative. This is an observation. All right? So if you've said this, I'm not trying to shame you in any shape, way, shape, or form. Please. But sometimes before communion, the song leader, remember the song leaders, would say, this song is to get our mind into the right frame for communion. I get that, and that is a valid statement. But it makes me wonder sometimes if we are lowering the value of song because we're raising something else up. God wants the song. The song should be part of us. And those of you who think that, oh, I, I can't hit a note at all, Neither could Dylan sing. <laughs> I mean, I, I, the man was an amazing writer, but he couldn't hit a note with two guides and a collie dog. He couldn't find it. <clears throat> Often wonder if he talked like that at home. Did you? Right? You know, pass the chicken, please. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But, and it would have taken him 15 verses to ask for the chicken. But he sang and he changed a lot of the world with his songs. Jesus didn't, God never said, sing the notes. He said, make a joyful noise. Now, we need to talk a bit here. Uh, we have found a sweet spot in, in 2018 with Mark and Keith and the like. And we've got a little acoustic, a little acapella. We've kind of got a rhythm going here. We all need to understand something. As much as we love this, it's not going to be forever because other people are going to come up and they're going to need to adjust this for them. And sometimes I've had people come here saying, oh, we like this because it's not like a rock and roll show. But you know something? Did you notice all those people at the rock and roll show? They needed that. Okay. Other people need the, let them Let them worship God the way they can. And sometimes it's going to be a joyful noise. I had one man said, I like it here, because the last place we went, I could have been singing the sweet by and by, and my wife singing Amazing Grace, and neither of us would have heard the other. I get that. I do. But understand, music changes when we change. It moves, because we move. We change. Music is how we welcome the Lord, how we focus on his presence, how we, how we invite him into our lives and into our gathering. It's also a public surrendering to him because we are saying these words out loud in the group. Singing was so important to the people of God that when they were unable to sing in captivity in Babylon, they hung their harps in the trees where the breeze would create music 
when they could not. In Psalm 137, 1 through 4, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Some people believe that when they hung those harps up, they were saying, we're done with music. Now, that's not the Jewish way. When they would set harps up in trees, it was so that God could supply the music by wind through the wires. They did not want to do without music. They were just unable to produce it for themselves at the time. So we sing. In the last few churches I've served, a minority of the people sang, at least for the first year or two. I've had many worship leaders tell me, in our churches, the front of the church sings to the back because the front of the church seemed to be more engaged. In my observation, the back of the church here sings just as well. And that's not meant to be flattery. It's just an observation. I am proud of you, by the way you sing. Please sing. And if all you can offer God is a joyful noise, offer him a joyful noise. And if others scoot away from you and cringe a bit, Welcome to my world. It's fine. It gives you more room to lay your stuff. Enjoy the, the space. Colossians 3:16 and Ephesians 5:18 and 19 have been often used and misused to act like they were telling us we can't use instruments, and that's not what they're about. Remember that a text without a context is a pretext. We need to understand the context. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through the psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Look at Ephesians. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to, to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Wow. Look at that, by the way, if you're wondering about that first line, don't be drunk on wine. The word drunk there does not mean intoxicated. That uh, We often get that confused. The word drunk and gluttony, all of these things are, are the same basket in, in Hebrew and Greek. They mean overfilled. Don't be overfilled with wine. Be so overfilled with God that he spills out in song. Some of you... Your most precious memories are of your mother singing in the house as she went about doing things. Maybe your father, as he sang, maybe just in church, maybe as he worked. In Scotland, the workers would keep the rhythm of the day by singing songs that, Porchevel um, uh, in the Gaelic, it, it, it means, it translates to mouth music but it's just a pattern of speaking that allows you to do the rhythm of your work. A lot of folk songs did the same, but God is saying, check the condition of your heart. If you are full of me, it will be spilling out in song. He wants the overflow of our hearts. He doesn't want just a bed. He wants the overflow. He wants all of us. When we sing also, we learn. Remember, we teach songs to little kids because it helps them learn. Uh, it's songs about how to tie your shoes or the like. It's the best ways of embedding theology in our brains. 
is to sing. I still do the little songs about the books in the Bible when I'm trying to find one. Do you? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Romans, okay. And I still do this. And when I go to the library, I'm still doing A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, O, K. And I'm there. And almost every time, I actually stop and say a prayer of thanks to the teachers who thought to sing me that song and taught me that song. And it stayed in my head where it needed to stay. Singing is as important as preaching, period. Maybe more so. For, in fact, for many people, it is. I don't believe I've ever heard my son sing. That's, I know he sings. I see his mouth moving whenever we worship with him. And I've had other people say they've heard him. He's very quiet when he sings. But I will never forget, before we left the Rochester, Michigan area, uh, my son had been in the Marine Corps and the like, and on Wednesday nights, our attendance was fairly poor, but we had different things going on Wednesdays. And I can remember my son asking, are we doing singing or classes this Wednesday? And I said, I think it's singing. And he went, okay, good. And that actually surprised me because I've always thought he was more of a data analytical guy. And so I looked at him and I said, you like the singing ones? And he goes, Dot, in my weeks, sometimes it's only the singing that will get you through. I need to hear the songs. I didn't know that. And I went, okay. And he talked to me about in the Marine Corps how the, the highlight of the week was Sunday. You don't get Sundays off. But you do get some, if you're not in combat, you do get time to go worship. And I said, where did you go worship? Because there wasn't a Church of Christ chaplain there, and there were a few different ones. He said, I, I generally went to the Pentecostal one. And I thought, all right, now, my son's face moved twice in the 80s, and so I'm not really sure what, what kind of, I, I said, did you feel out of place there? And he said, well, the, the preaching and the singing is not my thing, but I needed the singing anyway. And they sang. And I went, fantastic, keep going. Again, it's where we learn. It's where we build up others. Now, think about the song in Christ alone. In just over three minutes, you get a whole primer on Christian theology. That's what these songs do. And when you sing, I want to tell you something about your songs. You, you really need to know this. When you sing, you're building others up. That's what these passages said, but you need to know that you are. Think about this for a minute. You may not feel that you are a very powerful force in the universe and that you don't really change lives like the shepherds do, like the ministers do. You're just kind of a, a, an okay, everyday Christian. But if you sing, you are bolstering the faith of those around you. You're teaching them something. You're moving them forward. You have no idea how many times I have had to pull back, not sing, so that I could hear you and have the strength to do my job. You have no idea. I've had people say, you say you're a loner, but you're so outgoing. This is work. This is work. And some people say, you don't like public speaking, but you're so, no, this is a panic attack. Learn to understand the signs. <laughs> Don't be silent anymore. Hit us with Thorazine and get us home. Um, no, just get us home. That's all. Just go. That's all. Uh, anyway, the point being, this is work. And there are a lot of times 
the week I've had, I don't want to share because you can't. As a minister, you hear things. You go through, you can't share that. Now, please, my job is fantastic. It's easier than yours. I'm not, I'm not complaining. But I can't do my job sometimes unless I pull back and hear you sing a line or two. Sometimes a whole song or two. Sometimes, like last Sunday, when I'm sitting over there and we're singing a song about faith and troubled times and I look over here and there's a little girl singing it with her hands up. And my heart popped and God nudged me and said, see her? Catch up with her. Let your faith catch up with her. I needed to hear her. I needed to see her. Some of you are nodding. I think this must not be just me then. Your songs are important. When you sang, you reminded me and those around you that God is real. God has a track record. Look at Psalm 105. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. How do we do this? Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. We don't sing to him because he needs the eagle boost. We sing to him because we need to acknowledge the reality of his existence, his goodness, and his grace to the universe. We sing not for him, but for us. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. I love the way Peter does this. So I'll always remind you of these things, even though you know them, and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. So he left us a book. Other people have left us songs. And as you heard from Laurie Lee this morning, those songs can have a profound and lasting impact when we hear those words. One last thing before I ease into the final bet, because even though I have, there are no classes, and I could go to noon, I could do it. <laughs> I, I could. I know some of you would go, <coughs> I need a bit of water, and we wouldn't see you till Sunday, but wouldn't do that to you. One last thing before I enter the, the last close of this, and we'll take it up again next week. When you sing, you're taking battle to the enemy. Remember how they took Jericho? Songs. How did they take the rights back that had been denied them in the civil rights movement? It wasn't just song, but song was there. When they met in Washington, D.C., and Martin Luther King Jr. did his great I Have a Dream sermon, did you hear the songs? Those songs held the people together when nothing else would have done so. Our songs are waging war. In war, our weapons are love. And I say our love because love takes many forms. But we also wage the war, our loving war, with song. We sing of grace. You may be a visitor here today. You may even be somebody who's struggling with your, your faith. You, you need to know this is a safe place for you. We're not going to mock you. We're not going to be mad at you. We're not going to say bad things about you. Even if you're an atheist, we're not going to do that. We don't do that. 
We are Fourth Avenue. We are a family of Christ. Love is who we are. But what we will do is we will sing to you of the love of God, and we want you to know something. That love of God is for you as much as it is for us. And the grace of God that we rejoice in is given to you just as it is given to us. We're not singing a lucky us, we got forgiven. We're saying, he has come to all. So what do we do? Well, let me talk about the devil briefly. He wants to live in your thoughts. He wants to live in your attitude. He wants to live in your heart. He wants to live in the way you respond to things. When you fill yourselves with the thoughts of this world and the love of this world, you are giving to Satan the territory he wants most, your thoughts. That's where he wants to live. And so if you fill yourself with that stuff, that's what's getting in there. My wife and I used to go to the library and come home with a stack of books, and people thought we were reading all those books. No, it's just that she read a kind of novel, and I read a kind of novel, and sometimes about 10 or 15 or 80 pages in, you go, I don't need this in my brain. This one's going in a direction I don't need. And we push it off to the side. We do that with television shows. We do that with a lot. Why? Because we're holy? No, because we'd like to be. We have to watch what territory we hand them. Computer techs have an expression, or at least they did back in the 80s, the last time I understood what one said. He said, garbage in, garbage out. I get that. What are you putting in your mind? What fills you so much that you have to sing? Who owns the territory in your head? Who owns your heart? One day, every knee will bow. One day, the victorious will sing a new song with one voice. I would recommend that you avoid the rush and start now. Let's stand and look at Revelation 7. After this, I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Would you say that with them? That last, let's bring it back up if we could. Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen.